Section 14 of Library of World's Best Mystery and Detective Stories, Volume 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Library of the World's Best Mystery and Detective Stories, Volume 4, by Julian Hawthorne, Editor. Section 14. Melmoth Reconciled by Honoré de Balzac. Part 1. To Monsieur le General Baron de Pomerol, a token of the friendship between our fathers, which survives in their sons. De Balzac. There is a special variety of human nature obtained in the social kingdom by a process analogous to that of the gardener's craft in the vegetable kingdom, to wit, by the forcing-house, a species of hybrid, which can be raised, neither from seed nor from slips. This product is known as the cashier, an anthropomorphous growth, watered by religious doctrine, trained up in fear of the guillotine, pruned by vice, to flourish on a third floor, with an estimable wife by his side, and an uninteresting family. The number of cashiers in Paris must always be a problem for the physiologist. Has any one as yet been able to state correctly the terms of the proportion sum wherein the cashier figures as the unknown X? Where will you find the man who shall live with wealth like a cat with a caged mouse? This man, for further qualification, shall be capable of sitting boxed in by an iron grating for seven or eight hours a day, during seven-eighths of the year, perched upon a cane-seated chair, in a space as narrow as a lieutenant's cabin on board a man-of-war. Such a man must be able to defy anchylosis of the knee and thigh joints. He must have a soul above meanness, in order to live meanly, must lose all relish for money by dint of handling it. Demand this peculiar specimen of any creed, educational system, school, or institution you please, and select Paris, that city of fiery ordeals, and branch establishment of hell, as the soil in which to plant the said cashier. So be it. Creeds, schools, institutions, and moral systems, all human rules and regulations, great and small, will, one after another, present much the same face that an intimate friend turns upon you when you ask him to lend you a thousand francs. With a dolorous dropping of the jaw, they indicate the guillotine, much as your friend aforesaid will furnish you with the address of the money-lender, pointing you to one of the hundred gates by which a man comes to the last refuge of the destitute. Yet nature has her freaks in the making of a man's mind. She indulges herself, and makes a few honest folk now and again, and now and then a cashier. Wherefore, that race of corsairs whom we dignify with the title of bankers, the gentry who take out a license for which they pay a thousand crowns, as the privateer takes out his letters of mark, hold these rare products of the incubations of virtue in such esteem that they can find them in cages in the counting-houses, much as governments procure and maintain specimens of strange beasts at their own charges." If the cashier is possessed of an imagination, or of a fervid temperament, if, as will sometimes happen to the most complete cashier, he loves his wife, and that wife grows tired of her lot, 
has ambitions, or merely some vanity in her composition, the cashier is undone. Search the chronicles of the counting-house. You will not find a single instance of a cashier attaining a position, as it is called. They are sent to the hawks. They go to foreign parts. They vegetate on a second floor in the Rue St. Louis, among the market gardens of the Marais. Some day, when the cashiers of Paris come to a sense of their real value, a cashier will be hardly obtainable for money. Still, certain it is that there are people who are fit for nothing but to be cashiers, just as the bent of a certain order of mind inevitably makes for rascality. But, O oh marvel of our civilization, society rewards virtue with an income of a hundred louis in old age, a dwelling on a second floor, bread sufficient, occasional new bandana handkerchiefs, an elderly wife and her offspring. So much for virtue. But, for the opposite course, a little boldness, a faculty for keeping on the windward side of the law, as Turenne outflanked Montecucelli, and society will sanction the theft of millions, shower ribbons upon the thief, cram him with honors, and smother him with consideration. Government, moreover, works harmoniously with this profoundly illogical reasoner, society. Government levies a conscription on the young intelligence of the kingdom at the age of seventeen or eighteen, a conscription of precocious power. Great ability is prematurely exhausted by excessive brain-work before it is sent up to be submitted to a process of selection. Nurserymen sort and select seeds in much the same way. To this process the government brings professional appraisers of talent, men who can assay brains as experts assay gold at the mint. Five hundred such heads, set afire with hope, are sent up annually by the most progressive portion of the population, and of these the government takes one-third, puts them in sacks called the écoles, and shakes them up together for three years. Though every one of these young plants represents vast productive power, they are made, as one may say, into cashiers. They receive appointments, the rank and file of engineers is made up of them, they are employed as captains of artillery. There is no subaltern grade to which they may not aspire. Finally, when these men, the pick of the youth of the nation, fattened on mathematics and stuffed with knowledge, have attained the age of fifty years, they have their reward, and receive as the price of their services the third-floor lodging, the wife and family, and all the comforts that sweeten life for mediocrity. If from among this race of dupes there should escape some five or six men of genius who climb to the highest heights, is it not miraculous? This is an exact statement of the relations between talent and probity, on the one hand, and government and society, on the other, in an age that considers itself to be progressive. Without this prefatory explanation, a recent occurrence in Paris would seem improbable. But, preceded by this summing up of the situation, it will perhaps receive some thoughtful attention from minds capable of recognizing the real plague-spots of our civilization a civilization which since 1815 has been moved by the spirit of gain rather than by the principles of honor. 
About five o'clock, on a dull autumn afternoon, the cashier of one of the largest banks in Paris was still at his desk, working by the light of a lamp that had been lit for some time. In accordance with the use and want of commerce, the counting-house was in the darkest corner of the low-sealed and far-from-spacious mezzanine floor, and at the very end of a passage lighted only by borrowed lights. The office doors along this corridor, each with its label, gave the place the look of a bathhouse. At four o'clock the stolid porter had proclaimed, according to his orders, the bank is closed, and by this time the departments were deserted, the letters dispatched, the clerks had taken their leave. The wives of the partners in the firm were expecting their lovers, the two bankers dining with their mistresses. Everything was in order. The place where the strong boxes had been bedded in sheet-iron was just behind the little sanctum, where the cashier was busy. Doubtless he was balancing his books. The open front gave a glimpse of a safe of hammered iron, so enormously heavy, thanks to the science of the modern inventor, that burglars could not carry it away. The door only opened at the pleasure of those who knew its password. The letter-lock was a warden who kept its own secret and could not be bribed. The mysterious word was an ingenuous realization of the open sesame in the Arabian Nights. But even this was as nothing. A man might discover the password, but unless he knew the lock's final secret, the ultima ratio of this gold-guarding dragon of mechanical science, it discharged a blunderbuss at his head. The door of the room, the walls of the room, the shutters of the windows in the room, the whole place, in fact, was lined with sheet-iron a third of an inch in thickness, concealed behind the thin wooden panelling. The shutters had been closed, the door had been shut. If ever man could feel confident that he was absolutely alone, and that there was no remote possibility of being watched by prying eyes, that man was the cashier of the house of Nucingen and Company in the Rue Saint-Lazare. Accordingly, the deepest silence prevailed in that iron cave. The fire had died out in the stove, but the room was full of that tepid warmth which produces the dull, heavy-headedness and nauseous queasiness of a morning after an orgy. The stove is a mesmerist that plays no small part in the reduction of bank clerks and porters to a state of idiocy. A room with a stove in it is a retort in which the power of strong men is evaporated, where their vitality is exhausted, and their wills enfeebled. Government offices are part of a great scheme for the manufacture of the mediocrity necessary for the maintenance of a feudal system, on a pecuniary basis, and money is the foundation of the social contract. See Les Employés. The mephitic vapors in the atmosphere of a crowded room contribute in no small degree to bring about a gradual deterioration of intelligences. The brain that gives off the largest quantity of nitrogen asphyxiates the others, in the long run. The cashier was a man of five-and-forty or thereabouts. As he sat at the table, the light from a moderator lamp, shining full on his bald head, and glistening fringe of iron-gray hair that surrounded it, this baldness, and the round outlines of his face, made his head look very like a ball. His complexion was brick-red. A few wrinkles had gathered about his eyes. 
but he had the smooth, plump hands of a stout man. His blue cloth coats, a little rubbed and worn, and the creases and shininess of his trousers, traces of hard wear that cloth brush fails to remove, would impress a superficial observer with the idea that here was a thrifty and upright human being, sufficient of the philosopher or of the aristocrat to wear shabby clothes. But, unluckily, it is easy to find penny-wise people who will prove weak, wasteful, or incompetent in the capital things of life. The cashier wore the ribbon of the Legion of Honor at his buttonhole, for he had been a major of dragoons in the time of the emperor. M. Dinesingen, who had been a contractor before he became a banker, had had reason in those days to know the honorable disposition of his cashier, who then occupied a high position. Reverses of fortune had befallen the major, and the banker, out of regard for him, paid him five hundred francs a month. The soldier had become a cashier in the year 1813, after his recovery from a wound received at Studznyanka during the retreat from Moscow, followed by six months of enforced idleness at Strasbourg, whither several officers had been transported by order of the emperor, that they might receive skilled attention. This particular officer, Castanier by name, retired with the honorary grade of colonel, and a pension of 2,400 francs. In ten years' time the cashier had completely effaced the soldier, and Castanier inspired the banker with such trust in him that he was associated in the transactions that went on in the private office behind his little counting-house. The baron himself had access to it by means of a secret staircase. There matters of business were decided. It was the bolting-room where proposals were sifted, the privy council-chamber where the reports of the money-market were analyzed circular notes issued thence, and, finally, the private ledger and the journal which summarized the work of all the departments were kept there. Castanier had gone himself to shut the door which opened on to a staircase that led to the parlor occupied by the two bankers on the first floor of their hotel. This done, he sat down at his desk again, and for a moment he gazed at a little collection of letters of credit drawn on the firm of Watts Childine of London. Then he had taken up the pen, and imitated the banker's signature upon each. Nusingen, he wrote, and eyed the forged signatures critically to see which seemed the most perfect copy. Suddenly he looked up as if a needle had pricked him. "'You are not alone,' a boding voice seemed to cry in his heart, and, indeed, the forger saw a man standing at the little grated window of the counting-house a man whose breathing was so noiseless that he did not seem to breathe at all. Castanier looked, and saw that the door at the end of the passage was wide open. The stranger must have entered by that way. For the first time in his life, the old soldier felt a sensation of dread that made him stare open-mouthed and wide-eyed at the man before him, and, for that matter, the appearance of the apparition was sufficiently alarming even if unaccompanied by the mysterious circumstances of so sudden an entry. The rounded forehead, the harsh colouring of the long oval face, indicated quite as plainly as the cut of his clothes that the man was an Englishman, reeking of his native isles. You had only to look at the colour of his overcoat, 
at the voluminous cravat which smothered the crushed frills of a shirt-front so white that it brought out the changeless leaden hue of an impassive face, and the thin red line of the lips that seemed made to suck the blood of corpses, and you could guess at once at the blank gaiters buttoned up to the knee, and the half-puritanical costume of a wealthy Englishman dressed for a walking excursion. The intolerable glitter of the stranger's eyes produced a vivid and unpleasant impression, which was only deepened by the rigid outlines of his features. The dried-up, emaciated creature seemed to carry within him some gnawing thought that consumed him and could not be appeased. He must have digested his food so rapidly that he could doubtless eat continually without bringing any trace of color into his face or features. A ton of Tokay, Vindisucession, would not have caused any faltering in that piercing glance that read men's inmost thoughts, nor dethroned the merciless reasoning faculty that always seemed to go to the bottom of things. There was something of the fell and tranquil majesty of a tiger about him. "'I have come to cash this bill of exchange, sir,' he said. Castanier felt the tones of his voice thrill through every nerve with a violent shock similar to that given by a discharge of electricity. "'The safe is closed,' said Castanier. "'It is open,' said the Englishman, looking round the counting-house. "'Tomorrow is Sunday, and I cannot wait. The amount is for five hundred thousand francs. You have the money there, and I must have it.' "'But how did you come in, sir?' The Englishman smiled. That smile frightened Castanier. No words could have replied more fully, nor more peremptorily, than that scornful and imperial curl of the stranger's lips. Castanier turned away, took up fifty packets, each containing ten thousand francs in banknotes, and held them out to the stranger, receiving in exchange for them a bill accepted by the Baron de Nucingen. A sort of convulsive tremor ran through him as he saw a red gleam in the stranger's eyes when they fell on the forged signature on the letter of credit. "'It—it wants your signature,' stammered Castanier, handing back the bill. "'Hand me your pen,' answered the Englishman. Castanier handed him the pen with which he had just committed forgery. The stranger wrote, "'John Melmoth.' Then he returned the slip of paper and the pen to the cashier. Castanier looked at the handwriting— noticing that it sloped from right to left in the eastern fashion, and Melmoth disappeared so noiselessly that when Castanier looked up again an exclamation broke from him, partly because the man was no longer there, partly because he felt a strange, painful sensation, such as our imagination might take for an effect of poison. The pen that Melmoth had handled sent the same sickening heat through him that an emetic produces— but it seemed impossible to Castanier that the Englishman could have guessed his crime. His inward qualms he attributed to the palpitation of the heart that, according to received ideas, was sure to follow at once on such a turn as the stranger had given him. "'The devil take it! I am very stupid. Providence is watching over me. For if that brute had come round to see my gentleman to-morrow, my goose would have been cooked!' said Castanier, as he burned the unsuccessful attempts at forgery in the stove. He put the bill that he meant to take with him in an envelope, and helped himself to five hundred thousand francs in French and English banknotes from the safe 
which he locked. Then he put everything in order, lit a candle, blew out the lamp, took up his hat and umbrella, and went out sedately, as usual, to leave one of the two keys of the strong-room with Madame de Nucingen, in the absence of her husband, the Baron. "'You are in luck, M. Castanier,' said the banker's wife as she entered her room. "'We have a holiday on Monday. You can go into the country, or to Soise. "'Madame, will you be so good as to tell your husband that the bill of exchange on Waschaldine, which was behind time, has just been presented?' The five hundred thousand francs have been paid, so I shall not come back till noon on Tuesday. Good-bye, monsieur. I hope you will have a pleasant time. The same to you, madame, replied the old dragoon as he went out. He glanced as he spoke at a young man, well known in fashionable society at that time, M. de Rastignac, who was regarded as madame de Nucingen's lover. Madame, remarked this latter, the old boy looks to me as if he meant to play you some ill turn. Pshaw! Impossible! He is too stupid. Piquizaw, said the cashier, walking into the porter's room. What made you let anybody come up after four o'clock? I have been smoking a pipe here in the doorway ever since four o'clock, said the man, and nobody has gone into the bank. Nobody has come out either, except the gentleman. Are you quite sure? "'Yes, upon my word and honour. "'Stay, though, at four o'clock, M. Werbrust's friend came, "'a young fellow from Messrs. du Tillet and Co., in the Rue Yaubert. "'All right,' said Castanier, and he hurried away. "'The sickening sensation of heat that he had felt when he took back the pen "'returned in greater intensity. "'Mille diable,' thought he, as he threaded his way along the boulevard de Gand. Haven't I taken proper precautions? Let me think. Two clear days, Sunday and Monday, then a day of uncertainty, before they begin to look for me. Altogether, three days and four nights' respite. I have a couple of passports, and two different disguises. Is not that enough to throw the cleverest detective off the scent? On Tuesday morning I shall draw a million francs, in London— before the slightest suspicion has been aroused. My debts I am leaving behind for the benefit of my creditors, who will put a P on the bills, and I shall live comfortably in Italy for the rest of my days, as the Count Ferraro. I was alone with him when he died, poor fellow, in the marsh of Zembin, and I shall slip into his skin. Mille diable! The woman who is to follow after me might give them a clue." Think of an old campaigner like me, infatuated enough to tie myself to a petticoat tail. Why take her? I must leave her behind. Yes, I could make up my mind to do it. But I know myself. I should be ass enough to go back for her. Still, nobody knows Aquilina. Shall I take her or leave her? You will not take her, cried a voice that filled Castanier with sickening dread. He turned sharply, and saw the Englishman. "'The devil is in it!' cried the cashier aloud. Melmoth had passed his victim by this time, and if Castanier's first impulse had been to fasten a quarrel on a man who read his own thoughts, he was so much torn by opposing feelings that the immediate result was a temporary paralysis. When he resumed his walk, he fell once more into that fever of irresolution 
which besets those who are so carried away by passion that they are ready to commit a crime, but have not sufficient strength of character to keep it to themselves without suffering terribly in the process. So, although Castanier had made up his mind to reap the fruits of a crime which was already half executed, he hesitated to carry out his designs. For him, as for many men of mixed character, in whom weakness and strength are equally blended, the least trifling consideration determines whether they shall continue to lead blameless lives or become actively criminal. In the vast masses of men enrolled in Napoleon's armies, there were many who, like Castanier, possessed the purely physical courage demanded on the battlefield, yet lacked the moral courage which makes a man as great in crime as he could have been in virtue. The letter of credit was drafted in such terms that immediately on his arrival he might draw twenty-five thousand pounds on the firm of Watschaldine, the London correspondence of the House of Nucingen. The London House had been already advised of the draft about to be made upon them. He had written to them himself. He had instructed an agent, chosen at random, to take his passage in a vessel which was to leave Portsmouth with a wealthy English family on board who were going to Italy, and the passage-money had been paid in the name of the Count Ferraro. The smallest details of the scheme had been thought out. He had arranged matters so as to divert the search that would be made for him into Belgium and Switzerland, while he himself was at sea in the English vessel. Then, by the time that Nucingen might flatter himself that he was on the track of his late cashier, the said cashier, as the Count Ferraro, hoped to be safe in Naples. He had determined to disfigure his face in order to disguise himself the more completely, and by means of an acid to imitate the scars of smallpox. Yet, in spite of all these precautions, which surely seemed as if they must secure him complete immunity, his conscience tormented him. He was afraid. The even and peaceful life that he had led so long had modified the morality of the camp. His life was stainless as yet. He could not sully it without a pang. So, for the last time, he abandoned himself to all the influences of the better self that strenuously resisted. Pshaw, he said at last, at the corner of the boulevard and the rue Montmartre. I will take a cab after the play this evening, and go out to Versailles. A post-chase will be ready for me at my old quartermaster's place. He would keep my secret even if a dozen men were standing ready to shoot him down. The chances are all in my favor, so far as I see, so I shall take my little Naqui with me, and I will go. "'You will not go!' exclaimed the Englishman, and the strange tones of his voice drove all the cashier's blood back to his heart." Melmoth stepped into a tilbury which was before him, and was whirled away so quickly that when Castanier looked up he saw his foe some hundred paces away from him, and, before it even crossed his mind to cut off the man's retreat, the tilbury was far on its way up the boulevard Montmartre. "'Well, upon my word, there is something supernatural about this,' said he to himself. "'If I were fool enough to believe in God, I should think—' that he had sent St. Michael on my tracks. Suppose that the devil and the police should not let me go on as I please, so as to nab me in the nick of time? 
Did anyone ever see the like? But there, this is folly. Castanier went along the Rue du Faubourg Montmartre, slackening his pace as he neared the Rue Richer. There, on the second floor of a block of buildings, which looked out upon some gardens, lived the unconscious cause of Castanier's crime. A young woman, known in the quarters as Madame de la Garde. A concise history of certain events in the cashier's past life must be given in order to explain these facts, and to give a complete presentment of the crisis when he yielded to temptation. Madame de la Garde said that she was a Piedmontese. No one, not even Castanier, knew her real name. She was one of those young girls who are driven by dire misery, by inability to earn a living, or by fear of starvation, to have recourse to a trade which most of them loathe, many regard with indifference, and some few follow in obedience to the laws of their constitution. But on the brink of the gulf of prostitution in Paris, the young girl of sixteen, beautiful and pure as the Madonna, had met with Castanier. The old dragoon was too rough and homely to make his way in society, and he was tired of tramping the boulevard at night, and of the kind of conquests made there by golds. For some time past he had desired to bring a certain regularity into an irregular life. He was struck by the beauty of the poor child who had drifted by chance into his arms, and his determination to rescue her from the life of the streets was half benevolent, half selfish, as some of the thoughts of the best of men are apt to be. Social conditions mingle elements of evil with the promptings of natural goodness of heart, and the mixture of motives underlying a man's intentions should be leniently judged. Castanier had just cleverness enough to be very shrewd where his own interests were concerned, so he concluded to be a philanthropist on either count, and at first made her his mistress. "'Hey, hey,' he said to himself, in his soldierly fashion, "'I am an old wolf, and a sheep shall not make a fool of me. Castanier, old man, before you set up housekeeping, reconnoiter the girl's character for a bit, and see if she is a steady sort.' This irregular union gave the Piedmontese a status the most nearly approaching respectability among those which the world declines to recognize. During the first year she took the nom de guerre of Aquilina, one of the characters in Venice Preserved, which she had chanced to read. She fancied that she resembled the courtesan in face and general appearance, and in a certain precocity of heart and brain of which she was conscious. When Castanier found that her life was as well regulated and virtuous as was possible for a social outlaw, he manifested a desire that they should live as husband and wife. So she took the name of Madame de la Garde in order to approach, as closely as Parisian usages permit, the conditions of a real marriage. As a matter of fact, many of these unfortunate girls have one fixed idea. To be looked upon as respectable middle-class women who lead humdrum lives of faithfulness to their husbands, women who would make excellent mothers, keepers of the household accounts, and menders of household linen. This longing springs from a sentiment so laudable that society should take it into consideration. But society, incorrigible as ever, will assuredly persist in regarding the married woman 
as a corvette duly authorized by her flag and papers to go on her own course, while the woman who is a wife in all but name is a pirate and an outlaw for lack of a document. A day came when Madame de la Garde would fain have signed herself Madame Castanier. The cashier was put out by this. "'So you do not love me well enough to marry me?' she said. Castanier did not answer. He was absorbed by his thoughts. The poor girl resigned herself to her fate. The ex-dragoon was in despair. Naqui's heart softened toward him at the sight of his trouble. She tried to soothe him. But what could she do when she did not know what ailed him? When Naqui made up her mind to know the secret, although she never asked him a question, the cashier dolefully confessed to the existence of a Madame Castanier. This lawful wife, a thousand times accursed, was living in a humble way in Strasbourg, on a small property there. He wrote to her twice a year, and kept the secret of her existence so well that no one suspected that he was married. The reason of this reticence? If it is familiar to many military men who may chance to be in a like predicament, it is perhaps worth while to give the story. Your genuine tripper, if it is allowable here to employ the word which in the army signifies a man who is destined to die as a captain, is a sort of serf, a part and parcel of his regiments, an essentially simple creature, and Castanier was marked out by nature as a victim to the wiles of mothers with grown-up daughters left too long on their hands. It was at Nancy, during one of those brief intervals of repose, when the imperial armies were not on active service abroad, that Castanier was so unlucky as to pay some attention to a young lady with whom he danced at a redotto, the provincial name for the entertainments often given by the military to the townsfolk, or vice versa, in garrison towns. The scheme for inveigling the gallant captain into matrimony was immediately set on foot, one of those schemes by which mothers secure accomplices in a human heart by touching all its motive springs, while they convert all their friends into fellow-conspirators. Like all people possessed by one idea, these ladies press everything into the service of their great project, slowly elaborating their toils, much as the ant-lion excavates its funnel in the sand and lies in wait at the bottom for its victim. Suppose that no one strays, after all, into that carefully constructed labyrinth. Suppose that the ant-lion dies of hunger and thirst in her pit. Such things may be, but if any heedless creature once enters in, it never comes out. All the wires which could be pulled to induce action on the captain's part were tried. Appeals were made to the secret interested motives that always come into play in such cases. They worked on Castanier's hopes, and on the weaknesses and vanity of human nature. Unluckily, he had praised the daughter to her mother when he brought her back after a waltz. A little chat followed, and then an invitation in the most natural way in the world. Once introduced into the house, the dragoon was dazzled by the hospitality of a family who appeared to conceal their real wealth beneath a show of careful economy. He was skillfully flattered on all sides, and every one extolled for his benefit the various treasures there displayed. A neatly timed dinner, served on plate lent by an uncle, the attention showed to him by the only daughter of the house, the gossip of the town, a well-to-do sub-lieutenant 
who seemed likely to cut the ground from under his feet. All the innumerable snares, in short, of the provincial ant-lion, were set for him, and to such good purpose, that Castanier said five years later, To this day I do not know how it came about. The dragoon received fifteen thousand francs with the lady, who, after two years of marriage, became the ugliest, and consequently the most peevish woman on earth. Luckily they had no children. The fair complexion, maintained by a Spartan regimen, the fresh, bright color in her face, which spoke of an engaging modesty, became overspread with blotches and pimples. Her figure, which had seemed so straight, grew crooked. The angel became a suspicious and shrewish creature, who drove Castanier frantic. Then the fortune took to itself wings. At length the dragoon, no longer recognizing the woman whom he had wedded, left her to live on a little property at Strasbourg, until the time when it should please God to remove her to adorn paradise. She was one of those virtuous women who, for want of other occupation, would weary the life out of an angel with complainings, who, pray till, if their prayers are heard in heaven, they must exhaust the patience of the Almighty, and say everything that is bad of their husbands in dove-like murmurs over a game of Boston with their neighbors. When Aquilina learned all these troubles, she clung still more affectionately to Castanier, and made him so happy, varying with woman's ingenuity the pleasures with which she filled his life, that, all unwittingly, she was the cause of the cashier's downfall. Like many women who seem by nature destined to sound all the depths of love, Madame de la Garde was disinterested. She asked neither for gold nor for jewelry, gave no thought to the future, lived entirely for the present and for the pleasures of the present. She accepted expensive ornaments and dresses, the carriage so easily coveted by women of her class, as one harmony the more in the picture of life. There was absolutely no vanity in her desire not to appear at a better advantage, but to look the fairer, and, moreover, no woman could live without luxuries more cheerfully. When a man of generous nature, and military men are mostly of this stamp, meets with such a woman, he feels a sort of exasperation at finding himself her debtor in generosity. He feels that he could stop a mail-coach to obtain money for her if he has not sufficient for her whims. He will commit a crime, if so he may be great and noble in the eyes of some woman or of his special public. Such is the nature of the man. Such a lover is like a gambler who would be dishonored in his own eyes if he did not repay the sum he borrowed from a waiter in a gaming-house, but will shrink from no crime, will leave his wife and children without a penny, and rob and murder, if so he may come to the gaming-table with a full purse, and his honor remain untarnished among the frequenters of that fatal abode. So it was with Castanier. He had begun by installing Aquilina in a modest fourth-floor dwelling, the furniture being of the simplest kinds. But when he saw the girl's beauty and great qualities, when he had known inexpressible and unlooked-for happiness with her, he began to dote upon her, and longed to adorn his idol. Then Aquilina's toilet was so comically out of keeping with her poor abode, that for both their sakes it was clearly incumbent on him to move. The change swallowed up almost all Castanier's savings, for he furnished her domestic paradise 
with all the prodigality that is lavished on a kept mistress. A pretty woman must have everything pretty about her. The unity of charm in the woman in her surroundings singles her out from among her sex. This sentiment of homogeneity, indeed, though it has frequently escaped the attention of observers, is instinctive in human nature, and the same prompting leads elderly spinsters to surround themselves with dreary relics of the past. But the lovely Piedmontese must have the newest and latest fashions, and all that was daintiest and prettiest in stuffs for hangings, in silks or jewelry, in fine china, and other brittle and fragile wares. She asked for nothing, but when she was called upon to make a choice, when Castanier asked her, "'Which do you like?' She would answer, "'Why, this is the nicest.' Love never counts the cost, and Castanier therefore always took the nicest. When once the standard had been set up, there was nothing for it, but everything in the household must be in conformity, from the linen, plates, and crystal, through a thousand and one items of expenditure, down to the pots and pans in the kitchen. Castanier had meant to do things simply, as the saying goes, but he gradually found himself more and more in debt. One expense entailed another. The clock called for candle sconces. Fires must be lighted in the ornamental grates. But the curtains and hangings were too fresh and delicate to be soiled by smuts. So they must be replaced by patents and elaborate fireplaces, warranted to give out no smoke, recent inventions of the people who are clever at drawing up a prospectus. Then Aquilina found it so nice to run about barefooted on the carpet in her room that Castanier must have soft carpets laid everywhere for the pleasure of playing with Naqui. A bathroom, too, was built for her, everything to the end that she might be more comfortable. End of section 14 Recording by Katie Riley August 2009